0: scripture for us. Um, for those of you I haven't met, my name is Ashley Farner. Um, so glad to have you guys all here today. We will be reading out of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. If you have these blue Bibles in the pews, um, it is page 481, top of the left-hand column. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew eighteen twenty one through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, his master went, um, excuse me, his master, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do everything to you if you do not, have, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Uh, Will you you pray with me? Father, I thank you that um, your word is able to speak into every area of our life and even what I said earlier that the, as a church, we want to make disciples that follow your son faithfully in real life. And I'm just so grateful that, that God, you speak to our real life. You speak to relational conflict that is in need of grace and forgiveness, something every single one of us in this room can relate to and understand. And so I pray that today, as we explore that conflict, and as we explore the, the topic of grace, In opposition to bitterness, I pray that your spirit would help us to to just feel a sense of conviction to give one another grace, not out of guilt, not out of shame, but really as we remember the grace that we've received in Christ. I pray that that would move each and every one of us to think of those persons or think of those events that cause bitterness in our heart, And God, for us to be able to give that over and to genuinely forgive from the heart like your son teaches here. And so Father, towards that end, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to see grace and to give grace today by your mercy in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, like I said, uh, if I've not met you, my name is Josh and I serve as the lead pastor here, Icon, Icon. we are in a series called Contested Marriage, uh, and throughout this series, we'll be exploring different mindsets and desires that are uh, really fighting for ground in a marriage, and really in any human relationship as we continue to explore it. Um, there's some things that fight for our relationships, that fight for a marriage, but, but on the theme of marriage, I wanna say something that is uh, really stupidly obvious. Uh, having kids changes a marriage, right? Changes a marriage. It changes the methods and rhythms of connection. Uh, Having kids changes the dynamics of how often you're able to reserve time for just the two of you. But but having kids doesn't just change a marriage. It also reveals a lot of what was already in that marriage. Uh, And as Courtney and I have had kids, uh, we have an almost five-year-old and a two-year-old. There's one thing that has popped up the most often. Uh, that in reflection has really been there the whole time, but got revealed through kids. And that is the scorekeeping system. Scorekeeping system. If you have kids, you may recognize what I'm talking about. Uh, Kids take a whole lot of time and energy. Amen? Amen? And everyone is limited in time and energy. Every single person. And because of that limit, parents are often very aware of how much time, how much energy they are spending in comparison with how much time and energy the other parent is spending. Right? Right. (laughs) Real life vulnerable. vulnerable, Yes. So, so I'll give you an example. So yesterday I went to T-Mobile park uh, to watch the Mariners game on the big screen. It was an away game. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, and uh, it was an away game. They were playing in Toronto. And but they invited people to come watch it at the stadium on the big screen. And earlier in the week, I was like, I really want to go to that. Uh, And so here's what I start doing: I start doing math in my head. Okay, because here's the thing: that game was on a Saturday at one (laughs) o'clock. It's unthinkable to ask to do anything by yourself on a Saturday at one o'clock when you have kids. And so I'm I'm running through my mind. adding up the math of not just what the last week has been, but also like next week, I think Courtney has this thing and this thing on Friday and Saturday. So you know what, I I think I can ask to go. Uh, I I think I have the right to ask um, even though, honestly, she she stays at home with the kids and so I'm actually always at a deficit in that game. Um, But because it was a playoff game, I risked asking to be out of the house on a Saturday with that deficit. Uh, I feel like parents always have a, a running score of who is with the kids the most. And from that scorekeeping, we know whether we're allowed to ask our spouse to go do something. We, we, we keep score. And, and that's not just true in marriage. That's not just true in parenthood. But it's actually in every relationship. We, we have this unspoken score that we all keep in our relationships. So, for instance, maybe it's someone you've been trying to schedule dinner with for a while. Well, well, last time it was scheduled, they had to cancel. Well, now, okay, so now you're, you're in the profit, right? Which means, let's say you had a hard, exhausting day, but that dinner was rescheduled for that evening. Well, because they were the ones to cancel last time, you might feel a little more freedom to cancel dinner that time so you can have some time for yourself. We're keeping score. Am I the only one who does this? <laughs> does this connect with you at all? Okay. I'm an introvert, so I... I The dinner thing really connects with me. (laughs) Um, Now, the the examples of that that I gave, time with kids and canceling plans, those are relatively mild instances of this scorekeeping. But, But what about the scorekeeping of other sins? It's funny to point out how we keep tabs on who canceled dinner last time, but it gets less funny when we keep tabs on who lost their temper last time, right? It's much less funny to look at our sin scorecards and see that we are all referencing this scorecard in ways that manipulate others to really get what we want. And so we, we've kept track of how our spouses have hurt us. And often we use that as justification for that satisfying jab of a comment, right? I'm allowed to say this because you did this to me. We keep score. We've kept track of how someone has betrayed us, not loved us, or not come through on their word, and we use that to respond in kind. And that language is intentional. We use that to respond in kind. You feel freedom to say that sharp critique because of whatever that person did before. We justify our reactions, our own sin, on the basis of another sin. Well, friends, let me be very clear from the outset. The the invitation today is to take that little scorecard and throw it through the shredder of grace. Let grace shred that little relational scorecard into unrecognizable pieces so that you can no longer reference it, so that it will no longer prevent you from really loving the other person. That's the invitation today. In your marriage and indeed in every other relationship, there is a contest between grace and scorekeeping, grace and bitterness. And I want to explore that with you today. So we're going to we're going to unpack grace. But before we get into that, I do want to make something very clear as it concerns grace in marriage. Uh, A lot of what I'm going to explore today is about forgiveness and, and long suffering with one another, about forgiving one another from the heart. Uh, But I really want to make clear to you first that what I'm about to share with you, friends, it's not meant for the context of an abusive relationship. If you are suffering in any way from abuse, we here at ICON are here to support you and help you get out. Abuse is not something that someone should practice long-suffering with. I want to make that very clear. It is God's intention And desire that you are helped to escape that abuse and we are here to support you in getting out of it. Grace applies to every relationship at some point, but that doesn't mean grace in any way requires you to stay in an unsafe environment. Okay? Is that clear? I want to make that as clear as possible. Say yes. 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 Cool. Now... As you heard from the scripture reading, we are in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And and within this text is a a pretty famous parable of the unforgiving servant, which many of us know. Uh, But we don't often notice the location of this parable in relation to what is around it. And so just, just before this text is the famous church discipline text, where Jesus teaches his disciples what to do when someone over a long period of time refuses to acknowledge their sin. It's right before this. And then right after this text that we're in today is actually what we explored yesterday. The Pharisees question about what constitutes legitimate grounds for divorce, which means what we're exploring today on grace and forgiveness is right in the middle of a prolonged instruction from Jesus on how to deal with relational messiness and conflict. That in the middle of this prolonged discourse, Jesus highlights the necessity of grace and forgiveness. And friends, at at risk of repeating what I said last week, this topic of grace in the context of marriage is critical. (laughs) Critical in a marriage and in any other human relationship, sin will happen. And friends, in relation to marriage, when sin happens, the love that often starts a marriage, it won't be enough to fully deal with that sin. The love that really starts the marriage, that starts the relationship, won't be enough to really deal with the sin that comes into it. We we all get into a relationship because we're in the in love stage, right? We're in love. We feel it. And that in love stage is intoxicating, in fact, I'm, I'm convinced that it's intoxicating in order to delude us into getting into a long-term relationship with another human being, right? It's like God's intention. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put this veil over you called love. It's intoxicating. And during the in love stage, it's, it's almost like we can't see straight. The, the, the sins of the other person are less, less pronounced and less heavy to us. But then inevitably, there comes a time where that in love intoxication wears off and the sobriety of another person's sins kind of becomes a hangover for the relationship, to continue the metaphor. (laughs) All of a sudden, their impatience, their critical nature, their lack of self-control becomes not just a mild inconvenience, It's no longer something you feel like you can just look over. But now it's it's become the thing that you hate most about that other person. What used to just annoy you is now something you can't stand in the other person. And there comes a time where your sins are seen by your spouse for what they really are, sin. We see all of it. Grace is going to be critical. Because each of us are gonna sin against one another in very unique ways. And in study for this week, I came across this list from Tim Keller of some of the things that your spouse may see in you and be affected by. And I just, it's a long quote, but just stick with me. I'm, I'm kind of setting up how terrible we all are, okay? And then it gets better at the end, don't worry. Tim Keller says this. What are the flaws that your spouse will see? You may be a fearful person with a tendency toward great anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who is distracted, insensitive, or unaware of how you come across to others. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and critical of others. You may be an impatient, irritable person with a tendency to hold grudges or lose your temper too often. You may be a highly independent person who does not like to be responsible for the needs of others, who dislikes having to make joint decisions, and who most definitely hates to ask for any help yourself. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked, and so you tend to shade the truth and you work too hard to please everyone. You may be thrifty, but at the same time miserly with your money too unwilling to spend it on your own needs appropriately and ungenerous to others. You're in that list somewhere. (laughs) All to say, grace is critical. Grace is critical, but, but what kind of grace? I mean, what kind of grace? I mean, come on, how much grace should we really give out, right? I mean, how much on the relational scorecard Should we redact through grace? Well, well, here in the text that Ashley read for us, we have two ideas of the extent of this grace. And so so Peter, the the ever vocal disciple, comes to Jesus with a question. Hey, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive someone who sins against me? Peter is coming from the same dynamic we do. The the scorecard, right? Right. He's got the scorecard. He's referencing that. Peter, like us, knows that we often keep record of one another's sins. And his question is, Jesus, you're wise. How much is too much? How much is too much? At what point does the sins of another person stack so high that grace is just no longer an option? And if you read from the text, Peter, he assumes a number that he thinks is generous. (laughs) Peter says, as many as seven times? Now we read that and we hear Jesus' answer here in a second and we think, oh Peter, that's so small. But no, that's actually a really generous number. (laughs) I mean, come on, if someone sins against you in the same way seven times in a row and you forgive them seven times in a row, You would be commended for legitimately forgiving and being so generous with your grace. Peter comes up with a good option, seven. But though Peter thinks he's being generous with his idea of forgiveness, his number pales in comparison to what Jesus gives. If you remember, Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Oh, Jesus. Now Jesus is not just taking Peter's number and multiplying it by ten. Eleven. Eleven. Golly! So <laughs> that's why I, I got into ministry so I wouldn't have to take a math class. So <laughs> don't worry, we have other people working on the finances here at Icon. Okay. <laughs> by eleven, but remember, we so we just finished Revelation a few weeks ago, right? And so we should all know by now the significance of the number seven, right? The, the number seven in the Bible is often symbolic of completeness. And so, so Peter's number of how many times to forgive represents a complete forgiveness. But even Jesus multiplies that by, change this in my manuscript, 11, right? <laughs> in other words, Jesus' answer to this question is not only should we give a complete forgiveness, seven, But even our complete forgiveness should have no end. When someone sins against us, our forgiveness should instinctively outmatch the sin and overflow with abundant grace. Jesus gives the the command for abundant forgiveness toward one another. So much so that that the scorecard of another's sins is only useful in this model when it's used to multiply our forgiveness and grace. If you're referencing someone else's sins, it should be so that you know how to multiply your own grace and your own forgiveness toward them. That's Jesus' dynamic here. Now, when, when we look across the New Testament, we don't just see the, the quantity of grace, right? Although that's a lot here, but also the method of how this grace should be given to others. So, for instance, in, in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus tells us that if we are praying... And all of a sudden realize that we have something against someone, that we have been sinned against by someone, we should forgive them right then and there. Right then and there. Meaning the forgiveness that we extend should be happening before we even confront someone about their sin. That's the timing of forgiveness. That as soon as you realize you have something against someone, before you even go and confront them, you forgive them in their heart. The biblical method of forgiveness is forgiveness first, and then confrontation. We forgive someone who has sinned against us before we even make known to them that they've sinned against us. Now, this is is important to call out, because how we often use confronting others for our own vindication, right? Right? The biblical method of forgiveness before confrontation takes away the destructive desire to use your confrontation in order to just destroy the other person. No, you need to forgive them first. Again, here's here's Tim Keller on this. He says, we often confront people who have wronged us as a way of paying them back by telling them off we are actually getting revenge. They made us feel bad and now we are going to make them feel bad too. But this is absolutely deadly. The person you are confronting knows you are doing payback, and he or she will either be devastated or infuriated, or both. You're not really telling the truth for their sake. You are telling it for your sake. And the fruit of that will be grief, bitterness, and despair. So not only should the quantity of our forgiveness outmatch the sins of others, but also the method by which we extend that forgiveness is not self-serving, but serves the relationship. Abundant forgiveness that does not come from a self-serving vindictive stance. All of this, as Jesus shows at the end of this text, must come from the heart, from the heart. After Jesus tells this parable, he makes clear that the unforgiving servant He wasn't condemned just because he didn't offer forgiveness to his fellow servant. He points out that what the wicked servant missed was a heart that was ready to forgive. That was his issue. So Jesus says, forgive from the heart. I mean, you you and I both know the the false forgiveness that is easy to give, right? Right. You know, it's that forgiveness that we extend in order to just stop an argument. (laughs) In order to just move on, we want to drop it already. We want to just move on because if we dwell on it, then things are just going to get worse. And so we we say we forgive one another and then we move on. That's not the forgiveness Jesus is calling his disciples into. The forgiveness and grace that he calls his disciples into is what Paul points out in Romans 15, 5 through 7. Where he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's what Paul says in Romans 15. So after 15 chapters of Paul's deepest theological work in the Bible, he sums it up and says, welcome one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The forgiveness and grace that comes from the heart is signaled by a hospitable welcoming heart to the one who has sinned against you. That's a welcome that does not despise the company of the other person. That doesn't just give forgiveness and say, okay, can we move on with it? But I'm actually still really angry at you and don't really want to talk to you. No forgiveness from the heart is I welcome you. You come close to me again as Christ has welcomed you. It is through grace, it is glad to have that person still with you, still beside you. The extent of grace that Jesus lays out that we should give one another is abundant in its quality, in its quantity. It's unselfish in its timing and it's extended from the heart. And as as you can probably expect, Grace like that, that can change a relationship. I mean, that kind of grace has a deep impact on any relationship. The grace that goes beyond the number of their sins and that is given for the relationship rather than just for the self, that can change the dynamics of a relationship. Friends, grace toward one another can have a profound effect I mean, in fact, even, even one of the effects that is most important, it's, it's, it's kind of hidden in, behind this parable by Jesus, but after, so after correcting Peter on the amount of times that he should forgive someone, he, he tells the parable, right, about this servant who owed a debt and who was forgiven. And we read that, and we just fly by it like, whoa, that servant must have been really relieved, right? That servant must have been really relieved when his debt was forgiven. And with our Western eyes, that's all we really think about But for the original hearers of this parable, the end result would have not just been relief, but restoration for this servant. That's what they would have seen. Let me make it clear. So so we live today in what's called a, a guilt innocence culture. Does anyone know what that means? Cool. Yeah, a few people. Uh, We live in what's called a guilt-innocence culture in contrast to another type of culture called honor-shame culture. And so in a guilt-innocence culture, your whole goal is to just be innocent, right? And if you're guilty, to be cleared so that you can be innocent, right? That's how we operate in our relationships. I'm innocent of this. I'm not guilty of that. I am guilty of this and want to be made innocent. But within this context where Jesus is, it's not that. It's an honor-shame culture. Which means that the dynamics in your relationship doesn't have to do with guilt and innocence, but whether you are honored or you are ashamed. Whether you have honor in the community, or if you are ashamed. And for this person in the parable, who owes a massive debt, he is ashamed. He's ashamed. He's, he's not able to connect with other people in the community because he doesn't carry any honor. He can't even pay back what he owes. There's no honor there. Which means when the master forgives him of this debt, it's not just that he's relieved, but that he's restored. Grace restores. Grace doesn't just relieve us of the wrong that we've done. I mean, that alone feels wonderful to be relieved of feeling like we're the guilty one. But more than that, grace that we are to give one another is meant to restore honor to one another so that the other person doesn't carry shame in their relationship. Let me ask you this, friends. Does the grace you give cause the other person to stand tall again? Does it lift their shoulders up? Is the grace that you give full enough to let the other person not feel the need to walk on eggshells? Is the result of your grace just relief from guilt? Or does the grace you give cause that person to lift their head and feel like an equal person in the relationship again? Does your grace restore? The grace we give should not just clear one another of wrong, but should build up the other person to not feel Wrong. So, so let me ask it this way, specifically in relation to marriage. Is there one person in the marriage who seems to screw up the most? If you're nodding your head, you probably feel like that person. <laughs> me too, friends. Well, in that dynamic... Like there's a squeaky wheel who most often is the one asking for forgiveness. Well, back to the idea of relational scorecard. Is their sins longer than the other? Well, if you feel that way, is that person insecure in the marriage? Do they feel insecure? Are they made to feel like the main problem of the marriage, whether from you or from their own mind? Are they afraid of mentioning their needs to you because they feel like their sin has disqualified them from asking things of you? Or are they afraid of confronting you on your sin because their sin seems to pop up the most and, well, they don't feel qualified to feel hurt too? Grace, friends, is meant to restore one another to honor in the relationship. Not just to relieve one another of wrong, but to give them grace that they can feel equal again in their relationship. Grace is abundant. Grace is properly timed from the heart and restoring in its nature. That's what it should be. But, but what if it's opposite? Bitterness. Yikes. I mean, you know this. You, you don't have to... You don't have to give grace to one another, right? I mean, you can, you can choose not to. You also can't stay neutral, though. Either grace will be given or bitterness will develop. When someone sins against you, it will either be the occasion for grace to flourish or for the bitterness to defile. And wow, does bitterness defile. Wow, does bitterness defile a relationship. I mean, it spoils it. It spoils it by trying to be the means of settling things on our own terms, right? Bitterness spoils, it, spoils a relationship by offering a, a false security of self-protection from future, future hurt. It spoils the relationship because in its vindictiveness, it tries to teach the other person a lesson. We all know This. We all know that bitterness defiles and spoils a relationship. And so my question to you is, why do we do it? Why why do we grow in bitterness? Why do we choose bitterness over grace if we know it's going to defile it? If we know it's going to spoil it? Why is grace or why is bitterness so attractive? Well, it's, it's not just because it's easier, though it most certainly is. But there's another reason why I think bitterness attracts us so much. Think, think back to the parable that Jesus tells. The wicked servant is forgiven an unreal amount of debt. He goes out celebrating, but then sees a fellow servant who owes him pennies in comparison. Why does he choose to beat down the other servant instead of forgiving him? Like, like in that moment, why is he so vindictive? Why is he so about this small amount of money he was owed. It's really obvious. He wants the money, right? He gets bitter because he wants the money. The wicked servant is bitter, vindictive, and unforgiving because he wants his money back. And friends, he ain't getting that money through grace and forgiveness. He's not getting it that way. He gets that money back only through the route of vengeance and bitterness. Here it is, friends. Bitterness is appealing because it's one way we can get what we really want. It's one way that we can get what we really want, which begs the question, I think, what do you really want? (laughs) I mean, why'd you get married? What, What was it or what is it that you want from the relationship? Do you want to feel served and made to feel important? Bitterness can get you that. Do you want the other person to build up your sense of identity and self-esteem? Bitterness can get you that. There are all kinds of desires that bitterness can be used to satisfy, to achieve. But did you get into the relationship because you wanted a place of depth and connection? Was the desire for marriage driven by the desire to live vulnerably and authentically with, and yet with another person and not have that vulnerability used or threatened? Guess what, friends? Bitterness can't get you that. It won't win you that. Only grace and forgiveness can do that. Bitterness and grace are, are similar in that they both are capable of building the type of reward you want from the relationship. They both can be used that way. The reward of bitterness will serve you, but the reward of grace will serve their relationship. So the question to ask that will determine whether you pick up bitterness or whether you pick up grace is what you really wanted in the first place. And as you analyze that, see which one achieves that better. Grace or bitterness? Now I'll finish with the question of of how. How grace? And not in terms of practicality, but in terms of sheer possibility, right? How? We've spent the last 35 minutes painting a picture of grace that seems so unrealistic, so impossible. How in the world will we do this as we hurt one another with our sins? How in the world are we supposed to give this kind of grace, well, we all know that, that friends, you, you can't give what you don't have. And as followers of Jesus, if there's one thing we do have and are therefore equipped to give, it's grace. Grace is this gift that multiplies out to others when we properly receive it ourselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ holds every resource needed to be gracious with one another, friends. Every capability. We might be intimidated by giving grace upon grace to one another. It might feel like a big task. But we're empowered to do that, to give that grace when we know that we've received that grace upon grace, when we see that Jesus Christ has given us grace upon grace, and grace that has never been dependent on what you've done or not done. It's been built upon grace. So that this last week, I was reminded of a story by uh, of a time when the famous atheist Bertrand Russell uh, was giving a talk on uh, cosmology and the cosmos, and, uh, and he was talking about uh, the Earth's place in the universe. And, and during his talk, uh, this woman stood up and said, Sir, I don't believe that at all. And he said, Okay, what do you believe? In a very sarcastic voice, understandably. Uh, and she goes, I believe that the Earth is flat and that supporting that flatness... Is a very large turtle underneath. <laughs> and Bertrand Russell, holding it back as well as he can, said, Okay, well, what's supporting the turtle? And she said, Young sir, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> now take out the silliness, take out the delusion, replace turtles with grace, and you got the gospel. What's supporting grace? It's grace all the way down, friends. <laughs> that's what it is. That's what we have. We have grace upon grace. There's nothing supporting the grace of God towards you other than the grace that's underneath that and that and that. And when you see that, when you receive it, you can give grace upon grace to one another. The power of our grace to one another is sourced in the grace upon grace that we have in Jesus. I told you last week, friends. Marriage is not about marriage. Marriage is about Jesus. And if a marriage sticks and is healthy in its intended form, it is focused on Jesus. So, friends, would you would you sense the ways that maybe you've been bitter toward your spouse, or if you're unmarried, the ways that you carry bitterness toward? another person, and would you, would you feel the call to give grace? Would you see the appeal of what grace can achieve in the relationship in contrast to what bitterness will do? And would you just feel empowered that you have all the grace necessary to drink from, to be nourished by in Jesus Christ so that you can go multiply that out to the other? Let's pray. Father, I know that in this room there are, when we think about sin, when we think about grace in relation to another person, there's some serious things that come up in our mind. There's some real anger and real hurt this isn't just forgetting to, to make the bed in the morning, but real sins that really hurt. And I'm praying that right now, God, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, that we would feel that in this massive call to, to give grace where we've been hurt, that our spirits would be nourished by the grace that we have in Christ and by your presence, God. God, where grace is, is where you are. You're with us, even as we try to extend grace to one another. And so would you, would you just be our helper, Lord? Whether that's in marriage and friendship, relationship to family members, God, would you be with us and help us? Would you give us strength to, to be gracious with one another? and to embody the, the beautiful gospel that, that we call the true story of our lives. Lord, help us. Help us to reflect. Help us to feel the things we need to feel. And at the right time, do what we need to do and extend forgiveness in the proper way. Lord, we trust you for it and we ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to God. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week... Christ is all, and we are His.